Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. As the markets roll in with the new year, we check in with Fidelity Director of Global Macro, Urian Timmer, on what trends and topics he believes will move the markets in the weeks and months ahead. The inflation storyline continues to be the dominant headline as 2024 begins. Will the Fed cut rates this year? Also, is it even possible to get back to 2% inflation? Urian says 3% could be the new 2%. He says getting back to 2 will be a challenge and it might require a period of negative inflation if we actually want to get back to 2%. Furian points out the S&P 500 Equal Weighted Index is the most useful equity index as of now. Although it's been in a holding pattern for the last two years, the question is, can it broaden and will it broaden in a rising market? Urian also touches on Bitcoin and gold, tech stocks versus value stocks, and the impact of this year's upcoming U.S. election. As per usual, Urian will be sharing his charts, so please head to at Timmer Fidelity on Twitter to follow along. This podcast was recorded on January 8th, 2024. Let's get into what we've seen, which has been bumpy, as we said, but I wonder if we go a bit further back. We haven't seen you since sort of mid-December. Let's get your thoughts on, on a bit of a recap since we've seen you last. Absolutely. So let, let's start with slide one. Um, and so, yes, it's been an interesting year, right? If you think of all the outcomes in the markets as being um, manifested by, let's say, a bell-shaped curve, right? So the middle of the bell curve, obviously, is where uh, where the mean is, where most of the observations are. The left tail would be sort of the recession tail. The right tail would be kind of the inflation tail. And so if you think about navigating or traversing that bell curve, uh, which is what the market almost continuously does, uh, we started last year on the left tail, at least worrying about the left tail. We never got there, but, you know, Mark, uh, investors came into the year uh, fretting about, you know, a recession kind of, you know, 2022 was about the rate reset, about valuations coming down. And I think the expectation 2023 was, okay, the other shoe is going to drop and we're going to have an earnings recession and the market's going to fall because the E and the PE is going to fall. Uh, that recession obviously didn't happen. Maybe it will happen this year, but it didn't happen last year. Uh, and then by the summer, we were worrying about uh, interest rates, right? The 10-year Treasury yield went to 5%, 502. Uh, um, and, uh, and so that puts pressure on valuations for obviously bonds, but also for equities, right? So you think about a discounted cash flow model, you got earnings in the numerator, interest rates in the denominator, and the, and, you know, and that equation, uh, gives you the present value of future cash flows, which is what we do to come up with a valuation, uh, metric. So at the beginning of the year, we were worried about the numerator. By the right. middle of the year, we worried about the denominator. And huh. then towards the end of the year, we, we ended right on the bell, which is where Goldilocks lives. And so, uh, it was a remarkable thing. Finish. And, you know, with all the fireworks we saw from the bond market, the 10-year yield finished the year where it started, which is pretty remarkable. But, you know, nevertheless, we, we were able to avoid a potential third year of losses in the bond market. But as you see here from the periodic table, uh, bonds still finished near the bottom. And, of course, stocks, Bitcoin, large cap growth finished near the top. But if we, if we can go to slide 27, uh, to me, the big story for last year and this year 
um, is, you know, the market's stripping away the Magnificent Seven, these mega cap growers. Obviously, those were the star of the show. Again, that, that's in the large growth bucket that I just showed. Um, and they've been into the star of the show for a number of years, for nine years now, actually. But if we strip those out, you get essentially what this chart shows, which is the S&P 500 equal weighted index. And to me, that really is the most useful uh, equity index to look at right now. And what you see here is that that index has been going sideways for exactly two years. I mean, it's January 8th. The, the peak was January 4th of 2022. And so for the last two years, uh, the market's been in limbo. Um, and, um, and as that's you can see from this chart, time, right? I mean, that's a long time. That, that is a long time. So remember the market math, right? Market goes up 10, 11% per year uh, over the long term. Sometimes you have to be very patient to get, patient to get those uh, returns. Um, and it goes up two-thirds of the time, which, of course, means it goes down one-third of the time. Um, but you see that rising slope there. That is the underlying trend line for the market. And you can clearly see a pattern of stair-stepped uh, you know, uh, movement. So you have these big impulsive up waves. Then you have these kind of long, frustrating consolidations. Sometimes they're bear markets. Sometimes they're just kind of holding patterns. Um, and then the ultimately the uptrend resumes, uh, sometimes easily, sometimes you know, uh, not before inflicting some pain, as we saw in 2020. But ultimately, that upset, that uptrend, you know, has been going, has been in place for 150 years, and uh, I'm I'm certainly not going to, you know, try to outsmart that uptrend, even if we can, even if we can uh, fret over the fundamentals and the macro. But that's kind of the market math, and so. Knowing nothing else, uh, I look at this two-year holding pattern, which is a very long holding pattern, uh, and I and I see this as potentially a very large base, like we saw in 2015, like we saw in 2018 and 19, from which the uptrend will eventually resume. And as that happens, my guess is that the market will broaden, because again, this is the equal weighted index. And so the question is, will we get that rotation out of the mega caps into small and value and even into non-U.S. stocks? You know, the valuation discrepancies between the U.S. and non-U.S. are pretty stark. Um, and um, and I think that's going to be the big theme. And, the, and really the question, well, there's obviously two questions. One is, will the market broaden? And the second question is, can it broaden in a rising market? In other words, the Magnificent Seven are only seven stocks, but they comprise 30% of the market. Uh, if investors rotate out of those seven stocks, being, you know, given how dominant they are, can the market actually, can the index actually go up, at least at least the cap-weighted index? And, and that's another more like mathematical question about market plumbing. But that, to me, that's, th th this is the most important chart. If there was no other chart I can show, uh, it would be this one. It's absolutely fascinating. Okay, so let, let's just put it to you, the old discussion of inflation, and um, you, you've talked about it a little bit there, but the theories that are going around, there's the one that sort of, there was a, a the COVID event, it created a crater, obviously, in the economy that was filled by monetary fiscal policy money, basically, which then got soaked up and is transitory. And then you've got the piece where they say, well, look, there's there's all kinds of things going on, geopolitical an energy transition of sorts, all kinds of things that will be inflationary going forward, and therefore inflation 
continues to be inflation. Um, where do you sit? Do you have to choose one? Uh, no, I think it is a little bit of both. Um, and clearly there was a transitory supply chain bottleneck you know, aspect to it. And, you know, you and I have talked about the, the 1940s analog many times. And so in many ways, what we saw, the price spike we saw during and following COVID uh, really does look like a smaller version of when the U.S. lifted price controls after World War II ended in 1945. So there are clearly some similarities there. And, you know, inflation, the CPI, went from two to nine to three. So we have seen mostly a round trip at this point, but clearly there are some structural issues. I mean, the, the labor market remains very, very tight. And, you know, that also is a byproduct of, you know, not only of COVID because people left the labor force, but also of demographics, people retiring, et cetera. Uh, so the labor market remains very tight and that's creating some wage inflation. Um, and then we have things like, you know, geopolitics. I mean, you know, we, we got rid of one supply chain bottleneck and now potentially we have these issues in the Suez Canal and, and unrelated to that in the Panama Canal because of the water table. And and so that could be a bottleneck for global shipping, just like we had after COVID, um, that may keep prices elevated. And of course, we have deglobalization, onshoring, um, and we have you know the sustainability movement that also has some inflationary expectations as as supply chains get get re-engineered. So I think there are some good reasons to expect that even though inflation has come down a lot, which of course is good news. Um, it's unlikely to go all the way to 2% and stay there. So maybe three is the new two or three to four is the new two. And I think it's going to be much harder for, you know, core inflation, which is now at 3.2% to go a lot further down. Um, and, uh, and remember also that, you know, the year over year numbers can kind of be all over the place. Even, even the core numbers can be, uh, but when you look at long-term inflation, structural inflation, you need to look at longer-term rates of changes, right? So the five-year rate of change or the 10-year. And the five-year has gone from 2 to 4%. And in order to get that 4 back to 2, you need to undershoot the inflation numbers for a while, right? You need to go to, like, negative inflation to get that five-year rate of change back down through, you know, where it is now. And so there's some pretty heavy lifting still to happen, and that kind of, you know, brings into mind monetary policy because, you know, we had this massive year-end Santa Claus rally at the end of the year, uh, kind of driven by the Fed's FOMC meeting in December, where the FOMC, somewhat surprisingly, in my view, uh, really signaled that we're going to get three rate cuts, right? You can see that from the dot plot, and you can see that from the summary of economic projections, where they're saying by the end of this year, 2024, uh, the funds rate will be three quarters of a percent lower. And the reason I'm saying that I'm surprised of that is that uh, they really had a, they didn't really need to do that. There was a, they had kind of a free option to keep Play, you know, doing the dance the way they have been doing it, but they they really kind of you know um, almost capitulated a little bit, and of course the conspiracy-minded person will wonder if the timing of that in front of an election year was coincidental, but we don't have to get into that. I want to talk about that. Yeah. We'll, we'll <laughs> but but yeah, but but in any case, I'm just just finish. Um, 
but the market, being like a spoiled child, you know, they took those three rate cuts and they said, well, we're going to make it six, which is, which is kind of silly because if we have a soft landing, which is what clearly the market is priced for and what seems to be the most plausible scenario here, in a soft landing, if inflation is going to be 3%, then the Fed should be, let's say, at 4%, right? There should be somewhat of a positive real rate in a soft landing scenario because that's fairly normal, uh, historically speaking. And so if the, so the, the market is expecting the Fed to go to 3% and inflation's at 3 and the market's pricing for a soft landing. And those two things, those three things don't add up. Um, and so in that sense, the market is a little bit over its skis. And of course, we're already seeing the first week of January that the market is is churning a little bit, giving back some of those gains. The bond yield uh, went to 378. It's now around four. It really probably should be at four, two or four, three. So the market's kind of the market sort of front ran a lot of gains at the end of the year. And now we're kind of resetting. But still, uh, I'm still pretty constructive for 2024. Can I just go back to that looking at looking at sort of the five year, the longer term outlook ultimately on inflation? Um, I mean, if if inflation needs to get to two by virtue of being under zero for a period of time in order to get to an average of two, I mean, are we are we going into, you know, where our star is, which is growth, which is inflation, but ultimately we sort of get to negative growth, therefore we have to go into a recession to get to negative? I mean, is, is that sort of what hangs out there to get to? Uh, I think that's what would need to happen, and I'm not predicting that it will happen. I don't think uh, if we get a recession, I think it's going to be relatively mild if we get one, and it may be mild enough to not uh, – bring inflation down to kind of the levels that we're discussing in order to get those long-term numbers down. So my, my, my guess is that uh, inflation clearly is improving. Uh, I mean, people are still paying 3% more for stuff than they did a year ago. So it's still a problem, but it's less of a problem than before. Um, so my, my guess is that in a soft landing or mild recession scenario, uh, there won't be enough of a hit to the labor market uh, to re really kind of create outright deflation, which, again, on a rate of change basis, if you want to get the five-year number down to the Fed's target of 2%, and you're currently at 3 you need to undershoot that 2% to get to 2%, if that makes, if that yeah, makes sense. So my, so, so, so my guess is that that will not happen, and that okay. inflation will, will be sticky at 3-ish percent, which, again, is not the end of the world. And if you look at the kind of debt levels that the U.S. and Canada and other parts of the world have, uh, you know, you actually need some inflation to inflate your way out of, out of debt. So, um, And so I, I think that's the most likely. Uh, but, again, it has some implications for what the Fed can do either in a slowdown or in a recession. It has some implications for what the bond market can do. And so, you know, you mentioned R star. R star is estimated to be, and actually we can pull up slide eight, is estimated to be around 1% real. So that R star is generally a real rate. And the Fed, of course, is well above that because if R star is one uh, and the Fed is at five and inflation is at three, then you just do the math. The Fed is, is, is above that. So, so this chart shows R star in the gray line and where the Fed is using two different uh, estimates in the orange and the blue line. But the market is expecting the Fed to pivot really hard back to R star or even below it 
and the blue line is it shows below it and that only makes sense in a recession uh, but the market is betting on a soft landing so like something doesn't add up here and my guess is that it's expectations for the fed that need to be adjusted here uh, in the coming weeks okay awesome there's so many great questions gonna put some of these to you so um this sort of fits with the broadening discussion, the equal weight that you were talking about earlier, taking a look at that. So do you think value stocks will see a greater upside than tech stocks? Uh, yes. And I'm, let me find the chart here. Um, where are you? Uh, slide 15. So I, I do think so. There are different ways that the market can broaden. And just to give a little history lesson, if you go back 100 years, um, value value tends to outperform growth and small tends to outperform large uh, over the very, 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 very long term, uh, which makes sense because generally growth stocks, the large cap growth stocks are the quality stocks, which will save the day in a bear market, but they are going to have stable, predictable earnings uh, and they generally lag in an up market. I mean, you know, this current up market is the exception, of course, as we had during the Nifty 50 and the late 90s. But historically, over the very long term, that's the case. And then value stocks and small cap stocks are more economically sensitive. And over 100 years, the economy grows. So therefore, these stocks outperform. So that's kind of the, the basic math. So large growth outperforming everything else is the exception rather than the norm. Um, but you have these super cycles, which I show in the bottom panel here. So this is these are 10 year rates of change of small versus large value versus growth, non U.S. stocks versus U.S. stocks. And there's a three decades long super cycle, which, of course, is very hard to time because it's three decades long. So you can't can't day trade a, th a 30 year cycle. But you can see that we're poised for a period where these stocks will outperform and when you think about the macro backdrop, like if the Fed has at least to a large degree slayed the inflation dragon and it can bring policy back closer to neutral, neutral being probably 4%, right? 1% R star plus 3% inflation gets you to 4% nominal as a neutral rate. We're at five and three eight. So let's say the Fed can cut, you know, a couple of times and bring it closer to four. Um, you can think of it as a weight that has been sitting on these value stocks like bank stocks, industrials, et cetera, uh, or interest rate sensitive stocks like real estate. And if that weight now gets lifted, these stocks can finally breathe. And that's that chart of the S&P 500 equal weighted. Like it's this big base. It's like this big anvil has been sitting on that part of the market. And once you take that anvil away, uh, the market can breathe and it can do what it normally does, which is to go up in price because historically that's what happens. The economy grows. Profits rise and the market goes up. And so the, the glass half full uh, take on this is that all the Fed needs to do is take its foot off the brakes and these stocks can breathe and catch up. And, you know, it's an opportunity for investors because, uh, you know, I mean, the market in general has gone up last year, but the market equal weighted has gone up only half as much as the market has in cap weighted terms. And so if the rest, so if all of these stocks have been held back, uh, by tight liquidity conditions, um, and an investor, let's say, missed the rally because we were all waiting for that recession to start, there really is still a second chance for the rest of the market to catch up and for investors to actually get a second chance at participating. 
Fascinating. Okay, a couple other questions here. They fit together. Something we've been wanting to ask you about, um, I think, for weeks. Probably have anyway. Uh, thoughts on Bitcoin? Thoughts on gold? So gold is interesting. Um, it's at around two thousand dollars an ounce, and the macro narrative, of course, is now improving again because now we're talking about Fed rate cuts, and you know you get this ongoing sort of what we call fiscal dominance, right, where uh, the government here in the U.S. Um, is running the kind of deficits that you would expect to see in a bad recession, but we don't have a recession. We have an expansion and we have near record low unemployment, not quite at record lows anymore, but it's, it's close to it. So to be running deficits in that kind of environment, you know, creates more money supply and, you know, it kind of, it, it lends into the narrative to be owning gold. Uh, but mostly it's the real rate question and, and the Fed pivot question, but gold never went down in a big way when uh, Fed policy was very restrictive over the last two years. And that was really the surprise because gold does inversely move uh, uh, in line with real rates. So when real rates go up, as they did over the last two years, right, they went from minus 2% to plus 25 They're now down to plus 1.5%. Uh, but gold never really responded to that. And I think there's other things going on, obviously geopolitics, you have central banks like in China and Russia uh, buying gold. So there are so there are other things going on there to explain gold's uh, resilience. Uh, but Bitcoin, of course, um, is, is part of that. I mean, Bitcoin, as I've demonstrated in my work um, over the last couple of years, um, you know, it, it was it started as sort of its own little geeky thing. Uh, but now it's increasingly being seen as as uh, influenced by the macro, um, which I think makes sense because Bitcoin is aspirational money. It's trying to be money. Uh, we're not going to be buying our coffee with Bitcoin because it's too deflationary and too volatile for that. But we can buy Bitcoin as a store of value, which is why most people own gold, at least as investors. Um, and so that is the value uh, play or that, that's, the, the, that's the use case for Bitcoin from an investing point of view. And, um, and, you know, real rates increasingly matter in that sense. And so you have this adoption curve, which continues to grow. We continue to grow to new all-time highs. And then it's just a matter of how fast that adoption curve grows. Does it speed up or slow down? And the macro is really the, the main driver there. And, of course, here in the U.S., you guys were way, way ahead of us on, on that front. But in the U.S. here, we're waiting for the SEC to presumably approve a whole bunch of Bitcoin spot products. Um, and, and, you know, uh, that apparently is happening imminently. And so maybe even by the end of this week, there's going to be 10 or more Bitcoin ETFs or ETPs on the market, uh, Fidelity presumably being one of them. And so there's also an element to Bitcoin where some of that has obviously been anticipated. Um, and even though you don't see it directly in the, in the, the holding stats for Bitcoin, like if you, if you look at, at spot Bitcoin holdings, the percentage held less than three months it continues to be very low. So there isn't a lot of speculative action in the spot market. But if you look in the futures market, open interest has soared over the past few months. So clearly there are investors uh, sort of monetizing a future position ahead of time in the futures market. And my guess is that there will be some some version of a buy the rumor, sell the news happening when once these spot products get launched because 
these players will be selling their futures to buy the spot and the two will kind of cancel each other out, I think. Okay. Um, I wanted to talk just uh, a little bit about EM. This is a question coming in as well, but sort of in the early stages, it's, it, I don't know if it fits or there's an analogy, I'm trying to make some sort of connection to something, but, but there is sort of this sense of the Magnificent Seven and then everything else, and it, it may possibly apply to the world as well. It, it, it does. So if we can go to slide 14. Uh, so it's, it's interesting, right? So when we think about U.S. versus non-U.S. or North America versus rest of the world or DM versus EM, et cetera, et cetera, um, it really does come down to the Magnificent Seven because it's those seven stocks are 30 percent of the U.S. Uh, that skews the S&P towards a large cap growth sort of style box, um, and that sets it apart from pretty much anywhere else in the world, right? I mean, Europe doesn't have the kind of the AI plays that the U.S. does. So the U.S. does remain dominant in that sense, and that has opened up a fairly large valuation gap. So in this chart, there's a lot going on here, but I, I'm showing earnings growth in the main part there. But if you look at the bottom right, those are the current forward PEs. U.S. at 20, uh, you know, Europe at 12.8, Japan at, at 14. Uh, you know, like Germany is at like, you know, 11, UK is at 11, China's at nine, uh, LATAM is at nine. I mean, there are some really stark valuation differences. Uh, but the question is, like, does, I mean, it matters, of course, but without, without a catalyst, like, does it, does it really matter? So if we go to slide nine for, for a second, I can show you this in a different way. Um, so the U.S. is trading at a 54% premium to the rest of the world in terms of valuation. So that's, those are the orange bars in the bottom panel. Um, and, but that is not a driver of forward return. It, it will be an amplifier of forward returns once a catalyst makes the relative performance switch over. But and what the you really need sorry, is- The catalyst could be a, like a, a cut, could it? What could the catalyst be? Uh, I, Ultimately, it's got to be earnings. Um, so if you look at the top panel, it's relative performance, MSCI US versus XUS, and the forward earnings, MSCI US versus XUS. Those lines are identical. And so relative performance follows relative earnings. Um, and only when that turns will you get, will that valuation discount or premium, you know, come into play as an amplifier. And of course, it can come, that, that inflection point can come from a ver variety of things, right? It can be policy, it can be interest rates, it can be the dollar. Obviously, you know, MSCI calculates these earnings in dollar terms, so the dollar plays a role. So we don't really know what the catalyst is going to be. But it's the, the stage is certainly set, and as the market broadens out, um, and and investors would presumably rotate out of these Mag Seven just because there are just you know there are just better bargains elsewhere. Um, you do need to get those earnings to to flip as well, and that's what we're waiting for here. Classic, so so interesting to get all of this in. I'm going to ask you just for a quick one sentence discussion on the U.S. election. What do we what do we need to know as investors? Uh, I was so happy when the last one was over, but uh, now, now we get to do it all over again. Um, so remember that the, you know, the economy is bigger than politics, uh, although it can certainly be influenced by politics. Uh, the market is bigger. The market's very efficient. 
um, you know, and, and the markets tend to be okay. And, you know, but so the way I think of this is we have presumably if the two people that are at the top of the leaderboard are actually the two candidates, which we don't know yet if that's going to be the case, but if they are, uh, they're both somewhat populist and populists don't mind spending uh, money that the government doesn't have via deficits. So I think from a fiscal point of view, um, the election's not going to be uh, it's not going to be a, 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 a game changer. So we're going to continue to have deficits and, and that's and I think that impacts monetary policy and fiscal policy and obviously what happens to interest rates and the term premium. So from that angle, I don't see the election as a game changer. Uh, obviously, one party winning could create more volatility than the other because the other party, the incumbent party, we kind of know what to expect and we know what that's going to look like. Um, and of course, if Trump wins, we already know what that looks like as well, because he was president before. Uh, but there would be some tax implications uh, if that happens, some regulatory implications. But, you know, uh, so that might be uh, positively interpreted by the markets. But then if it's a more volatile presidency, which is probably, uh, you know, not an unsafe assumption to make, then uh, then that obviously matters as well, especially on the geopolitical front. Okay, so I love this. We'll be coming back to it in conversations with you, I'm sure, uh, as we go forward. But the equal weighted is sort of, if I were to pull a lead from what you just said, the equal weighted is the most interesting thing to look at right now. Yes, the potential for a bullish broadening, I think, is, is, the, is, the, is the thing that I'm eyeing the most for 2024. Yuri and Timmer, all the best to you and your entire family gathering in Aruba. Thank you very much. See you soon. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments.